Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Greetings to all of you who've joined us today for this very special global conversation. My name is Mark Ritchie. I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota, one of the three organizations bringing you this program today. We want to warmly welcome you wherever you are on the planet. If it's morning, if it's evening, late at night, we're glad you're with us today for this important conversation about NATO's climate challenge. Uh, our partners, the World Affairs Council of America and the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO, you'll be hearing from representatives and specialists and experts from these organizations. But I want to spend a moment to thank all members of Global Minnesota watching today. It's your support, your financial support that makes these kinds of events possible throughout the year. We offer these events free to the public, to all uh, your support makes that possible to advance our mission of advancing international understanding and engagement. Today, we'll have special guest, um, Ambassador David Angel from the Canadian um, Embassy representative there at NATO in Brussels, and Dr. Brian Wells, who's the chief scientist uh, at NATO there in Brussels. I had the good fortune um, when I was uh, responsible for trade policy in the state of Minnesota to be able to live and work in Brussels on those issues and got to know and become friends with a number of the amazing staff at NATO. So I'm thrilled that we have these visitors here today. I want to welcome our good friend of Global Minnesota and the president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of America, Bill Clifford, to introduce our speakers. Thank you so much for partnering with us on this, Bill. And Take it away. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Mark, for that warm introduction. And I'm delighted as president and CEO of the World Affairs Councils of America to introduce the speakers. I first want to mention that this special program is one of six that World Affairs Councils across the country are presenting on NATO 2030, strengthening the, the alliance amid new strategic and security threats. Um, this has been a special program that NATO's uh, uh, Office of Public Diplomacy has helped sponsor. It is a uh, pleasure to work with them again. And uh, without further ado, I just wanna congratulate Global Minnesota in advance for fitting this in their busy calendar because just as NATO celebrated its 70th anniversary a couple of years ago, the Global Minnesota uh, 70th anniversary is coming up and I know you have a virtual gala in June. So thanks for doing this. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ambassador David Angel, the permanent representative of Canada at NATO. Uh, Ambassador Angel has served as Assistant Secretary to the Cabinet Foreign and Defense Policy and at Privy Council since uh, 2016. He's also served uh, his government as High Commissioner to Nigeria and Kenya. He has been Director General for International Organizations, Human Rights and Democracy, and his experience with international organizations has included uh, high-level positions at the United Nations. He's also served uh, his government at the Embassy of Canada in the, in the United States in Washington, D.C. So, Ambassador Angel, welcome. And uh, Dr. Brian Wells, uh, was appointed by the North Atlantic Council to chief scientist for NATO in July 2019. I will allow him later to uh, tell us what all his responsibilities are, but prior to becoming chief scientist at NATO, Dr. Wells was at the UK, the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense as head of uh, science and technology policy, strategic research and international engagement. Uh, he has uh, been uh, part of the Ministry of Defense since 1988, serving in very senior roles, including as Deputy Director of NATO Policy uh, in 1997 and 1999. So he's no stranger to NATO. Uh, Dr. Wells, welcome to you also. Gentlemen, I'd like to open with a question uh, that you both can handle, but first to Ambassador Angel, and specifically, our topic is climate. How does climate fit into the security environment, the security context at NATO? What is it uh, about 
climate that fits in with NATO 2030. And Ambassador Angel, if you could also, as you answer this question, talk about your day-to-day -day duties and to what extent climate features as a priority within that portfolio. Bill, thank you very much for the introduction and, and thank you for, for having me on this, uh, on this broadcast. Before I answer the question, let, let me uh, express to, to participants in Minnesota uh, the condolences of the Canadian government and people on the death of uh, Vice President Walter Mondale, uh, who was a statesman of enormous importance uh, and, a, and a great champion of NATO and, and who will be greatly missed. Um, my day-to-day my -day job um, involves representing Canada on the North Atlantic Council, which is the main forum for the discussion of uh, the security of the Euro-Atlantic area. Um, my day job at the moment involves preparing for um, a summit of NATO leaders. Um, so President Biden will be joining us and, and the president's enormously vigorous uh, reaffirmation of commitment to alliances and to NATO in particular is hugely appreciated. And of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be joining us. And, and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, is, is a, a, a champion of longstanding uh, on issues relating to, to climate and, uh, and climate change. Um, NATO's engagement on climate change is not new. Uh, first of all, um, there has been a recognition for a while uh, that climate has an, an, a, a significant impact on security. Uh, it can be a uh, threat multiplier. Climate change can aggravate existing vulnerabilities. Uh, it can uh, contribute to instability. Uh, and so it's something that's been on NATO's radar for many years. Um, it was reflected, for example, in the strategic concept that NATO adopted back in 2010. Uh, in 2014, NATO adopted a, a green defense framework to, as part of a, an attempt to address uh, climate issues. Uh, and then most recently, NATO four ministers uh, agreed a climate and security agenda. Uh, and we fully expect that when leaders meet uh, in June, uh, they will uh, look very closely at the impact uh, of climate uh, on security. Um, I, we, we're focusing on three particular aspects. One is understanding uh, much better the impact of climate change on security. Uh, and we're going to want to um, really leverage that understanding. Now, one example, we've just seen uh, the meeting of the Arctic Council and climate change in the Arctic is having an enormous impact on the geostrategic situation in, uh, in northern regions in general. Uh, second, we'll want to look at how uh, NATO and how the 30 allies can adapt uh, to climate change. Um, and then we'll also want to look at uh, what we can do uh, by way of mitigation. Uh, greening our militaries is a win-win, uh, decreasing our reliance on fossil fuel supply, uh, increasing our operational effectiveness, the bottom line for NATO is that climate has a huge impact uh, on our operations. Imagine our soldiers in Iraq, for example, or our soldiers in the high north. Um, but there's recognition as well uh, that military operations can have a significant impact on the climate. Uh, and so in Canada, for example, as I mentioned, climate change is part of our defense strategy. Uh, but our defense department also has in place an environmental strategy to mitigate uh, the impact of the defense sector in Canada uh, on climate emissions. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Angel, for uh, sharing both the NATO perspective and that of, of Canada. Uh, turning to you, Dr. Wells, um, you know, you took your job a little less than two years ago as chief scientist, and you have been there during the year of the pandemic, which has taught us all about how uh, varied the responses uh, have been of states to a global crisis, uh, in some ways a preview of what is to come with climate perhaps. Um, they say alliances are as strong as the weakest member. I'm not gonna ask you to name that, but obviously there's variance when it comes to climate amongst the 30 allied countries of NATO. Can you talk about how difficult that makes your job and what your day-to-day uh, -day priorities are? And then, Mark, it'll be over to you. Thank you very much um, for the opportunity to speak to you uh, today. It's an honor and a privilege to uh, engage in 
this uh, seminar. And of course, I associate myself with the condolences that uh, Ambassador Angel has uh, conveyed. I'd like to start, first of all, with my day job and then explain how that links in with climate change. So I really have two roles as NATO chief scientist. Uh, the first is advisor um, to NATO leadership in the headquarters in Brussels on matters of science as they affect defense and security. Some of these will be very obvious, I think, to all of us, the science that underpins uh, missiles and tanks and so on, and of course, cyber and space. But um, I cover the full range of science that is of relevance to defense and security within the nations. So um, only two weeks ago, I published a report on the science that uh, the NATO Science and Technology Organization has done to improve the integration of women into the armed forces, for example. Last week, I briefed the nations on some of the science that underpins uh, the verification of nuclear disarmament as another example. So this is a very, very broad range of science uh, that I may advise leadership on. Uh, leadership in the context of the summit is very much focused on new technologies and maintaining the Alliance's technological edge um, in these new technologies. And that, that is a, a very key part of my advice function. The second part of my job is um, overseeing an international collaborative research program that is undertaken by scientists within the NATO allies and also uh, partner nations. Um, We've got a, a network of around 6,000 scientists in North America, in Europe, and in our global partners as well. It's the biggest international defense science network in the world. And uh, scientists and experts from the United States, from the government laboratories, from um, your other research institutions play an absolutely vital role in that. And I know that they benefit from collaboration with others. That's the way scientists work. Um, at any one time, we've got about 300 research projects underway. And as I say, that covers the full range of science that NATO uh, needs to uh, undertake its uh, defense and security uh, functions. This is research done within the nations for the benefit of the nations. So that's very much my day job, advising to leadership and overseeing this uh, very significant international research collaboration. So let me now turn to how that um, fits in with the uh, climate change agenda. Um, I should remind uh, colleagues that um, our NATO Secretary General is a former UN Special Envoy on uh, climate change. So he has uh, both a personal and a professional interest in this. And he spoke at President Biden's um, Leaders Summit on climate change only last month and on the 22nd of April and has welcomed President Biden's leadership on this topic. As Ambassador Angel said, um, NATO has identified three areas where it has a specific role, um, understanding climate change, adapting to climate change and mitigating climate change. And science um, can, can contribute to all three of those pillars. I'll just at this stage give a few examples. In terms of understanding, uh, NATO has a maritime center of excellence of science based in La Spezia in Italy. Uh, it has a research vessel which is ice resistant. Um, that travels into the Arctic. It does um, Arctic environmental um, research and analysis to improve the understanding of the allies um, of uh, climate change as it affects the maritime environment. In terms of adaptation, uh, science underpins the, the sort of clothing that um, the armed forces will need in future as they operate in warmer climates, as they operate uh, in climates that can be more extreme than they are now. Um, and in terms of mitigation, cutting emissions, um, reducing the dependence of um, 
allies platforms on fossil fuels, increasing the use of biofuels and increasing the use of solar panels. All of that requires a scientific base and um, working together in collaboration between the North American allies and the European allies. Um, this is just one of the areas in which the NATO Science and Technology Organization can contribute to climate change and is already doing so. So thank you very much for the opportunity to um, set out very briefly the, these points. Thank you. Thank you to both for bringing us into your world, bringing us into the uh, kind of day-to-day -day work there. Um, I uh, serve as the civilian aide to the Secretary of Army in the United States for Minnesota. So every morning at 5 a.m. I get a lot of briefings. I can see that within the national structures of the member countries, there's a lot of concern, you know, just in general and also very specific. If you've got naval bases or army bases near the coast, you have all kinds of destruction. But when my uh, role as this uh, aide to the Secretary of the Army rolls out, I'm much more focused on how our state, Minnesota, our National Guard, we have Army and Air, is in fact in a formal partnership with new members of NATO who've come in over the past. And so these partnerships often are focused on things like emergency management and dealing with natural disasters. So this has been built into, we have a very old partnership with Norway. We have a relatively new partnership with Croatia. Are there uh, real work programs that uh, either come out of the science side of the house or the troop-to-troop uh, -troop training and development part of the house that you see as vital to each of these three pillars, the adaptation, the research, and the mitigation? Thank let, you. Let me, Brian, go ahead, please. Oh, sorry. Um, in, in, in answer to this the science behind that, the, the question is uh, absolutely um, the understanding, uh, particularly in the maritime side, is done by NATO's own laboratory um, that is funded uh, largely from Allied Command Transformation based in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, individual allies um, will also fund uh, that center to do um, maritime environmental science uh, for their own benefit and for the benefit of the Alliance uh, as a whole. Um, within the NATO Science and Technology Organization, um, individual nations will partner with other nations, um, be they allies or be they good partners, like-minded partners around the world, such as Australia and Japan, for example, they will partner, they will do research that they want to do to support their armed forces. Uh, quite often we find the same problems um, emerging in different allies at the same time. So, mm -hmm. so many allies now are um, publishing their own defense climate strategies. Um, they are facing exactly the same problems of reducing the dependence on fossil fuels and increasing um, their use of biofuels. That capability really starts with an understanding of the science and how that science will work in the battlefield. So there is true defence science to do, in addition to the very excellent work that is done by the civil sector as well. So. These allies, the experts talk together all the time. They can develop the collaborative research projects to take that forward. And when it's the, the United States, it's for the United States to identify or, or indeed to invite other um, like-minded nations that have the same defense problem at the same time. So it, it works in a truly collaborative way. Thank you. Great, thank you. Mr. Ambassador? Mark, at the outset of the conversation, you, you asked about NATO 2030 and about what NATO leaders would be focusing on when they meet on June 14th. One of the priority uh, sections of the 2030 reform package, and I, I should say that uh, this is a reform initiative led by the Secretary General that's intended to further strengthen uh, the alliance, especially in its political role, uh, but one of the principal chapters uh, will be on resilience. Uh, and one of the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic 
uh, is the imperative to greatly strengthen the ability, not only of militaries, but entire societies uh, to respond uh, when uh, challenges we all have been uh, by the pandemic. Uh, and so uh, this is directly relevant to, to climate change. But resilience is a national responsibility, but it's an area where we, um, we learn from each other. Um, now, NATO's uh, aspiration as part of the 2030 uh, process as regards climate change is for, for NATO to be the lead organization globally on climate and security. Um, and that involves uh, all of the allies uh, upping their games. And you're right, we're, we're a large mm -hmm. alliance now, 30 uh, member states uh, with differing histories and differing levels of engagement on climate change, uh, but in addressing climate change. But, but there is um, creative work being done across all 30. Uh, now, I mentioned that we Canadians, our defense ministry has adopted a defense and environment strategy. In fact, it's, uh, it's, it's implementing the new iteration now. Um, the goals include improving energy efficiency, integrating climate change adaptation into the department's programs, um, maintaining sustainable real property. What that means is uh, making sure that it's the, the 2.1 million hectares and more than 20,000 buildings for which the defense ministry uh, is responsible are part of the solution on climate change and then strengthening the procurement process um, so that it reinforces uh, green goals. Uh, we've learned a lot in, in implementing that and we're working very closely with allies to make sure that lessons learned are exchanged so that we can uh, collectively um, meet much more ambitious uh, greenhouse gas emission targets, for example. Thank you. Well, um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, in a course at the uh, U.S. War College, and what was very important about the cohort that I was in were all of the people from other NATO countries and other friends who were mixed into the training. I mean, it was you know focused largely on, in this case, U.S. Army, but the addition of so many other perspectives and voices was really important. Does NATO generate training sessions, um, you know, where there's multiple countries represented and ongoing sort of leadership development, uh, programmatic skill development, that kind of thing, or is it nation to nation? Um, NATO does. I mean, first of all, we have a, an excellent NATO Defense College in Rome that works with, uh, with our own armed forces. Um, but we also un undertake major training missions. We call them train and assist missions. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, we Canadians led until recently uh, the NATO mission in Iraq. Uh, it's now led by the Danes. Uh, and part of that is working uh, with the Iraqi armed forces um, to uh, the focus is on um, helping them address the threat of terror. Uh, but we help build capacity in, in a number of areas. Uh, and I suspect that in the future, uh, climate and security will be increasingly um, important as part of that mix. Uh, we're winding down a major training uh, mission in Afghanistan now. Uh, again, one of the elements of the NATO 2030 package is looking at how NATO can strengthen its training uh, and assistance role uh, with partners, including mm -hmm. we have a 360 degree perspective here, work closely with partners in Asia uh, and Africa, uh, as well as uh, in the more immediate region. Uh, and I, I think you can um, expect that climate and security will be an increasingly important part of that work going forward. Great, and go ahead, Dr. Wells. Thank you. I, um, building on what Ambassador Angel has said in terms of the global um, reach of NATO 2030 and um, the wish to build closer relations, including with training and assistance with like-minded nations around the, the globe, um, we quite often find when we're building relations with new countries that cooperation in science is actually one of the low-hanging fruits. It tends to be um, amongst the easier things that we can start. So I'm, I'm very proud that I'm um, able to support NATO and the NATO allies in um, exploring new contacts with, with new countries ar around the world um, as a forerunner to the um, more concrete types of support that, that the ambassador has mentioned. 
Yes, I'm very glad that you, you mentioned that and, and you commented earlier just about the necessity and the importance of that kind of global collaboration. This pandemic has kind of given us a graduate reminder or lesson in that. Um, my father was a Marine in China right at the end and at the part of the Second World War and saw people die from famine, came back to the United States, said, we got to apply science to this. He became an electron microscopist. But that attitude about sharing science and information and moving towards global, you know, they spent 24 years trying to handle a pandemic that affected hogs, pigs. So yes. this notion of science being one of the things that uh, occasionally gets choked off, but generally speaking, scientists want to be talking. Uh, I remember that was the way that the leaders uh, hoped to knit Germany and France science back together after the First World War, trying to concentrate on science and medicine and prosthetics and stuff. So you both are in uh, sort of advanced scientific realms. Uh, I think they flew uh, some big jumbo jet with the uh, biofuels to Montreal or Toronto this week, something like that from Paris, I guess, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Do you see this uh, sort of rapid transformation in science, creating some new opportunities, but maybe some new challenges, the, the mad dash to AI, to drone, you know, all there are some big things going on that can be within the climate can give us information, but can also accelerate. How does that feel from the inside? You both are really there in the middle. You're absolutely right, Mark. And a shameless plug for Canada, our former prime minister, Lester Pearson, was the architect of NATO's work on science. And so we feel a very deep attachment to it and have for many decades now. But the issue that you put your finger on now, which is really the broad, area of emerging and disruptive technologies is absolutely central to what we're doing. And it's also a part of NATO 2030 and part of what leaders will be focusing on in June. Um, NATO historically has maintained a qualitative edge uh, over any would-be adversaries. Um, and it's hugely important to us that we, we maintain that. And so we're looking vigorously uh, at uh, quantum, at artificial intelligence, at a whole range of things that I'm, I'm sure Brian will speak to in much, much greater detail in a moment. Um, we Canadians are part of that. We're, we're global leaders in AI, for example. Uh, but what we uh, see is the nature of warfare changing. Uh, so the impacts not only on, on climate and security, but it's much broader than that. Uh, we're also seeing that, for example, with hybrid warfare um, and uh, aggressive use of cyber, um, uh, warfare being undertaken in, in entirely new ways, including in ways that are sort of not quite warfare, but certainly not quite peace. And so uh, that's a big uh, area of focus uh, for us. But Brian can give you a much more substantive answer. Thank you very much. Um, before turning to um, emerging and disruptive technologies, I'd just like to say a few words about what NATO itself did on COVID-19. It was uh, a very active organization, particularly in terms of the logistics of moving vital defense equipment, uh, sorry, vital uh, medical equipment to uh, allies and partners who needed it. This, this was a, a massive operation, which is still ongoing. Um, and for, for, for around a year or more, NATO has been doing this. Um, transporting by air the, this vital medical equipment. The scientists um, have also pooled their knowledge um, of the work that they've been doing in support of their own nations for the benefit of everyone. So um, we have been active in uh, giving uh, support to uh, the mitigation of this pandemic. Um, turning to uh, emerging and disruptive technologies, uh, as the ambassador has said, this will be a feature of the summit. Um, NATO is proud of having a technological edge um, over near-peer adversaries, but recognizes the challenges that um, this, this faces um, in maintaining this uh, technological advantage. And 
I think we are doing this um, because uh, if we look at the way in which these new technologies are different from the technologies of the past, um, we find, um, first of all, that new technologies um, tend to grow in the civil sector um, mm -hmm. rather than the defence sector by itself. I'll, I'll just list the challenges first and then um, how we can address them. So um, we're looking at developments in the civil sector um, for the new technologies coming forward. Uh, secondly, um, we're looking not only at the um, speed of technological advance, but the very breadth of technological advance as well. So that makes um, decisions on priorities uh, very difficult. And thirdly, we need the right people to do um, this, mm. this work. Um, it's, it's the quality of the, the scientists that will maintain the technological edge. In terms of um, how we overcome these issues, um, NATO as an organization has very good links with uh, civil science as well. Uh, my own team work well with um, civil institutes so that we can see these new technologies as they are developing. Um, so th that is in contrast with some of our near peer competitors, which tend to be very closed in their um, defense work. In terms of the breadth of um, the technological work, um, we publish regularly um, a technology trends that uh, allows every ally to see our best judgment on what trends are going to be over the next 10 to 20 years so that the allies can come to their own judgments on what to prioritize. And in terms of the quality of scientists, um, we should recall that the top 18 universities in the world are on the territory of NATO allies, and the top 28 out of 30 are also in the, um, on the soil of NATO allies. So we do actually start from, I would argue, a position of strength in um, looking at uh, how to harness these uh, new technologies as emerging and disruptive technologies and employ them for the best um, use by the nations of NATO. We are, of course, very conscious that um, some of these technologies might uh, give rise to potential use that um, we would consider to be um, unethical, illegal, etc. The Secretary General, when he launched NATO 2030, was absolutely clear um, that in harnessing uh, new technologies, NATO would do so in a way that preserved the norms and values of the NATO nations, and that is that is absolutely clear. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Mark, if I could, if I could please. just amplify that for a moment, just just to reinforce the fact that, that NATO is a values-based alliance, and and so the entire objective of the alliance is to, is to preserve and reinforce uh, the values that that the allies share. And so Brian's point is incredibly important. And and as we embark on a uh, new cyber command, a new space command, um, very much with the with the view that we will always operate within a, an ethical framework and within uh, within international law. Um, I, I just on before we, we leave the the issue of transformation, I just wanted to um, to to underscore the fact that we have an alliance command transformation that's actually based in the U.S. Uh, that leads uh, on issues relating to um, promoting innovation in, in defense technology. It's an incredibly important part of the NATO. Uh, infrastructure. Uh, it's based in Norfolk, and so uh, folk there are very conscious of uh, climate and security issues and risk of sea level rise, for example, uh, and of flooding. Um, but one of the things that leaders will be looking at uh, when they meet in June is, is how we can uh, further reinforce uh, NATO's work in terms of innovation and technology um, in all of these areas. Thank you. The, the impacts in terms of the military and the structures around security are, you know, clearly very large and very impactful over a long period of time. I know that I also have experienced this, but from a slightly different angle in that um, uh, NATO contracted with the Brussels Dialogue on Cl Climate Diplomacy, which is a part of a transatlantic environmental dialogue that I helped to start when I was there in Brussels 25 years ago, but it is it's a continued to build relationships in civil society 
on a very, very multi-country basis. So about 70 organizations contributed to a big report to NATO on sustainable peace and security on climate. It'll be kind of released in a public way on June 1st. But what happens is that it puts civil society organizations in touch with each other across national boundaries and getting different perspectives. It's very different what people think and talk about in Alaska and what they talk about in Italy. And you know, in our friends with the Norwegians and Swedes. So the, the impact of NATO includes the development of technology or innovations that are directly applicable. They then go out into the broader society, but also NATO then puts others in civil society in contact with each other and hopefully in contact with scientists, politicians, diplomats in the public sector as well. Do you see evolutions? Both of you have been NATO involved or at the core of security involvement over time. Do you see evolutions in the civil society, NATO, military, environmental, that will have um, sort of more profound implications in the kind of way that this pandemic clearly will have you know, profound implications? Um, I, I can I can jump in. The short the short answer is is yes. Um, NATO consults extensively um, with civil society. The 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 2030 package itself was developed uh, by a high level panel of experts. Uh, we we had a, a Canadian member. There was a U.S. co-chair, um, and that and this panel, which which recommended that NATO do more on climate and security, uh, consulted. Um, with youth consulted uh, fairly widely. Um, the international staff itself has a whole range of consultative arrangements uh, in areas uh, like human security, for example. Um, part of the, the purpose of the 2030 reflection process is to see how, lever how NATO can leverage uh, partnerships um, uh, more effectively. This includes partnerships with more than 40 countries, but also partnerships of different types. Um, and as we look um, ever more closely at issues relating uh, to um, climate and security, uh, for example, in understanding geostrategic impact, uh, we will be drawing on the work of groups uh, like the International Military Council on Climate and Security. There's a whole network and infrastructure uh, in civil society that frankly is a, is a step or two ahead of uh, many of the, um, the allied governments. Uh, and yes, absolutely, we will draw upon the excellent work that they're producing. If, if I can add to that, I, I see a, um, like the ambassador, um, a growing um, link between NATO and other civil international organizations. The OECD is uh, an, an obvious one. NATO has a liaison office uh, with the United Nations at New York um, and also um, in Geneva, for example, and a lot of the security challenges that um, NATO 2030 um, is is addressing, uh, climate change is a particular one, um, is very much something that uh, affects defence and security um, and within civil society as well. We saw uh, in relation to uh, COVID-19, um, very significant disinformation campaigns, which really affected civil society. People were uncertain in, in a number of cases on some matters of important uh, health management. Uh, NATO itself, uh, played uh, an important role in countering um, that disinformation and in ensuring that the right messages um, were put through to civil society and that the allies um, were also uh, given those messages and the ability to um, rebut disinformation. So we've got a, a real life example um, and real-time example of how NATO's work with the civil society is um, working to the benefit of, of everyone. And Mark, just one other point to, to stress. Um, we in NATO and our partners at the European Union uh, attach real importance to the two organizations working ever more closely. 21 of the uh, allies are members of the EU. 
on a range of issues, we have complementary skills uh, and complementary instruments. Uh, and climate and security is just one area, EDT, that we talked about a moment ago is another, uh, where the strengths of both organizations can be brought together um, and where we can see much closer cooperation than we've seen historically. So I was very uh, interested earlier when you were describing the cooperation on the transport of the protective gear and other things in the early phases. Um, we uh, began to learn more this last year about the common services of the UN, the World Food Program, which of course came out of General Eisenhower saying, we got to do something about this and we got to do it in a collab collaborative way. And then the World Health Organization being part of that series of airports. Is the work of NATO in mobilizing air transport and you know, handling logistics interwoven with WFP, WHO in that common services? Is that how that got done? Well, NATO is not a frontline organization. We, we've been supporting allies and partners, but the allies and partners themselves um, are ensuring that the steps they take are completely integrated mm -hmm. uh, in okay. the approach okay. led by WHO and others. Uh, we do work with the UN in other areas. We do work with the African Union in other areas. Um, but uh, uh, on, on, on uh, the response to COVID, um, we have been working directly um, with the allies, as Brian said, but also with the whole range of partners. And okay. so we put in place a trust fund, we put in place uh, stockpiles, um, we've made available ventilators, we've um, helped to, to mount uh, medical uh, units. Uh, and as Brian said, uh, we provided some heavy lift to get kit from A to B, um, but, uh, but in a support role, not in, uh, not in a front line. And does it impact you when the US moves AFRICOM up into Europe and makes for a more integrated global military force for the United States, does then have ricochet and impact NATO or is it just part of the, the daily uh, alteration of things? The US is... You're on mute, Dave. yeah. All right, got it. The U.S. is such a, a vital ally that um, you know, every, anything they do affects us, and, and we benefit enormously from from what uh, from what the U.S. does. Um, but the I, I think you need to speak to colleagues in military uh, uniform to get an answer to that question. Um, the international military staff is very joined up um, with the U.S. The most senior commanders are, are the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, for example, is dual hatted with the NATO role and the U.S. role. Um, so yes, I assume the answer is, is that it does, but you, we, you need to speak to folk in uniform to get a, a response. Thank you. So we were very fortunate in Minnesota that our public policy school, which is named after Hubert Humphrey, another you know, kind of key international leader along with uh, Vice President Mondale, um, and Harlan Cleveland was one of our ambassadors to NATO and he brought as the founding Dean, he brought that global perspective, the integration of security with information. I mean, he was really a visionary, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister Pearson. There have been very, very senior global leaders helping to found, shape and then sustain NATO over time. So this last period where there was so much uh, bluster and noise and whatever from Washington in a very, uh, you know, for most of us, I would speak for us out in this part of the country, unhelpful attacks on NATO. It's very uh, reassuring to have things moving and especially on climate and other issues. But there is a worry, like how do we keep things on track because governments come and go, leaders come and go. What we consider a threat one day, not another day. And um, so I'm wondering how the resilience language and some of the things that the pandemic has made us think about might also apply in the sort of institutional resilience. Uh, WTO has been asking some of these questions and trying to think about them. OECD also. What about NATO at the core of its 
long-term uh, sustainability resilience thinking underway on that kind of subject? Um, short answer is is yes. I mean, we 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 greatly appreciate the extraordinarily strong reaffirmation of U.S. support for multilateralism, for alliances, and and for NATO uh, that we've heard from President Biden. And these are messages that no doubt will be. Um, amplified when leaders meet uh, in June. Uh, those messages are, are, are absolutely vital and, and hugely welcome. Um, but you know, the, the, the US is an indispensable part of this alliance uh, and, and that remains the case, uh, administrations in and administrations out. Um, back in April of 2019, um, we celebrated NATO's uh, 70th anniversary in Washington where the Washington Treaty of course had been signed um, and Secretary General Stoltenberg um, in addition to meeting with the president in, in the White House, uh, had the honor of being the first head of an international organization uh, to deliver an address to a, a joint session of Congress. And I had the privilege of being in, in the House chamber to hear that address. Um, and, and it was an extraordinary uh, reaffirmation uh, of uh, the role of NATO. Uh, and the response, uh, the bipartisan response from the US Congress was overwhelming. There were more than 30 uh, standing ovations, all of them completely bipartisan. Uh, and so, um, you know, all of the allies came away from that uh, visit to Washington, um, having seen it firsthand, uh, the, the, if you will, the permanence and the completely bipartisan nature of US support uh, for NATO. Um, and uh, if you look at the military engagement, if you look at the messages that we've heard uh, from secretaries of state and defense, irrespective of the administration, uh, they have been messages of very, very, very strong support, and that is enormously welcome. But we Canadians are committed multilateralists. Uh, we always want uh, multilateral organizations to work better. Uh, for example, we're doing some creative work in, in the World Trade Organization, uh, which you mentioned. Um, uh, I have been doing multilateral diplomacy for 30 years. Uh, this is uh, the best-led uh, international organization that I have, uh, I, I have seen operate. Um, part of you know, the NATO 2030 uh, reform process that, that we've referred to a couple of times, uh, it, it, it's, it's one of a series of uh, such um, reform initiatives that NATO has put in place every five or 10 years to make sure that the organization is, is fit for purpose. And the organization's greatest strength is that it continues uh, to adapt. And so as long as the US as the indispensable ally is part of that, and as long as we maintain the commitment to, to, to adaptation, uh, this will remain uh, the very strong, very effective alliance that it is. If I may um, make a few supplementary points on that. Uh, I was privileged to be at the NATO summit in Washington in 1999 when the 40th anniversary was um, celebrated. And as, as Ambassador Angel has said, the indispensable role of the United States is as true now as it has been um, then. Um, in terms of the bipartisan support, I would add that NATO has a very um, strong and influential parliamentary assembly, which is um, made up of parliamentarians of the allies, um, and, and that is, is a strong um, supporter of uh, NATO and its work, and it gives good um, parliamentary advice and guidance um, to the Secretary General um, on, on the work of the uh, Alliance. Um, and the, the, the other point I would make is that um, as we move forward into the summit next month, one of the um, deliverables that the Secretary General um, is expecting to get will be a mandate from the leaders to um, look at the strategic concept um, with a view to having an updated strategic concept at the um, summit in 2022. The strategic concept um, was last um, approved uh, in 2010. It served the Allies well, but uh, we all know that there have been some significant uh, changes uh, since then. So in addition to the adaptation uh, that we will see um, at 
the summit next month. Um, there will be further work, as Ambassador Angel has said, uh, including uh, a new strategic concept uh, at the next summit. Thank you. And, and the strategic concept will, I think, have even more content relating to climate and security yes. than the 2010 version did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things that I've noted, uh, I mean, this has been a big week in the climate world just because so many reports and really, you know, uh, roadmaps. But a lot of the roadmaps and a lot of the current discussion is really about technology being the way that we will get closer to net zero, you know, that's how we'll meet obligations. Uh, one thing about technology is that it's uh, often physical or digital in a certain way. So it's produced somewhere, it's sold somehow, there are trade rules, there are things that affect it. But another thing is that it has, you know, unintended consequences. I, there's a lot of talk of geoengineering and I noticed the Sami people speaking of the Arctic Council are not happy with our good friends from Sweden and from Minnesota. So we're kind of a Swedish outpost here, not kind of, we are, but you know, we're gonna have unanticipated consequences and also technology. Um, yes, a big boat got stuck in the Suez Canal, that was international news, but a boat almost as big got grounded by 12 crew members getting COVID in the Great Lakes of the United States and had to be parked and couldn't go. So technology will be what we see driving the attempts to meet our climate obligations, our climate aspirations and mitigate, but also it will have unintended consequences. It'll have trade disputes. It'll have all the things. It'll have cost, uh, cost overruns, cost underruns. So we know that we're entering uh, an era where this technological part will be alongside of what we might have informally thought of as a scientific part, but it will be something that is, you know, part of the management through the political process of how the society chooses. Geoengineering, Samis don't like it, whatever it might be. And so can, in our last few minutes, can you give us your kind of aspiration and hope when you're at your um, ceremony honoring you for decades and decades of service and you're going to get a chance to do more fishing because somebody young is taking your baton from you, what would you like to be able to see as the interaction of the political part, because you're in a political organization with a security with these changes that are now being said, we got to do something about climate what you where are we going to go how would that look to you at that part looking back i'm not i'm not sure mark i can give you the the, the when i am fishing look back um but certainly one part of that relates to ensuring that the the, the defense sector broadly um isn't part of the problem in terms of emissions. Now, our Prime Minister, yeah. Yeah. Brian mentioned that Secretary General Stoltenberg had been at the climate summit uh, that President Biden hosted on April 22nd. Our Prime Minister was, of course, and he, he announced um, um, the significant um, enhancement of our emission reduction target. Uh, our Defense Department is part of that. It has its own uh, emission um, reduction goals, and those two have been accelerated. Um, but when you think about um, the amount of equipment that a defense ministry has, everything from, from uh, trucks through tanks through everything else, um, we can do an awful lot to make uh, our footprint, uh, the military footprint, uh, less dramatic than it is now. Our defense ministry, for example, is part of the, uh, the plan I mentioned at the beginning, um, has a target of 100% clean energy by 2022. Um, where that's attainable with a, with a backup where, where, where it takes longer. Uh, if all of the 30 uh, militaries uh, that are part of NATO uh, can dramatically reduce their footprints in that way, uh, that would be an enormous contribution. And if alongside that, we succeed in making NATO the pivotal organization globally on climate and security, uh, then that'll be a pretty good uh, set of contributions to look back on. Amen. <laughs> I think when I um, reach that point, I hope that um, I will be able to say that um, in the years from where, where we are now, we are very much at the cusp 
in which the defence sector can make a difference um, in climate change. And um, as Ambassador Angel has said, um, Canada has a um, defence climate change strategy. A number of other allies do, but some don't. And I hope that I can be part of encouraging through um, Alliance Sciences uh, and scientists um, to learn from the best um, and to help others uh, do the same through our collaborative work so that collectively we do get on top of the science. There is um, more science to do to help both understand some of the um, more technical areas of climate change. There is a lot we can do to um, adapt our um, military concepts of operations, our use of biofuels, um, and to ensure that uh, NATO forces can operate and undertake the sort of operations that it might need to do um, in, in relation to um, climate change and the sorts of uh, geopolitical and humanitarian um, challenges that we might see. If I can um, make a difference there, I will have considered my time in NATO as well spent. Well, thank you. thank you so much for those really positive and optimistic views. And I, I've had my own experience, our, our National Guard here, where I'm on the advisory board, uh, kind of the senior board, you know, we were able to build the biggest solar garden in the state. And that made other people go, oh, we can build one bigger. And you could see that leading by example is one of the things that NATO in general but then the industries and the scientific institutions that are part of that family can help be leadership in addition to the exact and precise contributions that can be made. But getting everybody to realize that this isn't a future that would be nice, it's a future that is a must, and it's not a future that is a maybe, it's a future that has to be in this way. And so I wanna thank you for giving us that hopeful message. I wanna thank you for giving us a kind of inside picture of this amazing, important work, specifically on climate, but you both put this in the larger context of the partnerships, of the relationships and of the indispensable nature of those partnerships and of multilateralism in general. And I wanna uh, you know, uh, uh, urge our, um, viewers from wherever they are. I know that on the NATO website, some of the key documents, I know this new report that I helped contribute to um, will be out. I do wanna urge people to just stay tuned in and keep learning um, about our North American Treaty Organization, our in the broader sense, and also to follow the specific work that, um, that, that is underway that can help us all tackle a climate crisis that is uh, very big and we are giving it over to a next generation and we need to do all we can um, before we do um, turn that over. So this uh, opportunity today, thank you to NATO for thinking about coming and being part of these public events all over the country. Uh, and uh, best wishes on the upcoming summit. Uh, I know the Arctic Council is happening now, and that's got to be one of the big climate NATO intersections of some level, uh, but also on the whole 2030 process. We'll be looking forward to next year. Hopefully there'll be that new, that every 10 year or so strategy document, and perhaps we can entice you back to give us an insight and update on what that looks like. So Bill, any last words from the World Affairs Council of America? Thank you for inviting me back in, Mark. I posted some to the chat and I just wanted to thank uh, you and your team. And of course, also to Dr. Wells and to Ambassador Angel for making this such a rich conversation. We appreciate your being part of WACA's NATO 2030 speaker series. Our next event goes to Alabama, our World Affairs Council there, where we'll be looking at outer space as a domain. We continue on to Houston to talk about global energy and resiliency. And then finally, we'll wrap up uh, on May 27th, next Thursday in San Francisco, where we look at 
emerging and disruptive technologies and cybersecurity. So we've identified cities that have a lot to do with their topic and to the ambassadorial and, and Brussels links uh, among them. And we thank everybody for participating in this program. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Carolina Gustafson and Olaf Krohn made the technology possible. Thank you. Tim Odegaard helped pull this together with Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. If you're a member or you enjoy or want to learn more, we'll be talking next week about trade policy in the new Biden administration. We'll be looking at sustainable development goals. We have a regular roundtable. And Bill reminded me to say, yes, we've turning 70 this year, Global Minnesota, and we're going to celebrate uh, that uh, coming up. And uh, a lot of things have happened in the world, and we want to make more things happen as the world goes forward with our partners, WACA, NATO, and others. Thank you, everybody, and thank you again to our presenters. It's great, great to have pleasure. you with thank us. Thank you for having Bye us. Now. Thank Bye you now. very much.